Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a strong, hopeful, encouraging word this is. How calming it should be. How stabilizing. How hopeful. Again, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, you, before you formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is where hope is found. This is where purpose is found. This is where direction is found for living. This confidence that in our Creator God, this confidence in our Creator God, we find the basis for our worship and for our praying and for our hoping for our faith, our believing. When you consider the vastness of the universe, when you consider our place in the world, my understanding is this past week, I think we crossed over, what, 7 billion or 8 billion people living on the earth? And it's pretty astonishing when you think about that, and then you read about the vastness of the universe. You read about the mysteries of, of it's incomprehensible how large and vast the universe is. And it's somewhat ironic, and perhaps surprising, that we still believe somehow that we're the center of the universe. <laughs> that somehow everything revolves around us. It, it would be comical if so often the results of that are not sad or if not tragic. The reality is we need to find a way through this life. We need to find understand where, what is our place and how does our place fit? And is it possible that the God of creation, the one who is God everlasting to everlasting, that he, though he is vast beyond measure and beyond our imagination, that he cares and is concerned for us? We ask these questions, do we matter? What difference can we make? Does anyone, apart from ourselves, does anyone really care about us? And I want to tell you that these questions are not new. You know that. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis and the four books that follow it in our Bibles, they were first read by Israel's descendants who had come through the wilderness, the wilderness of Sinai. They had been released as a nation. They had been released from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And now they were on the shores of the Jordan River, anticipating occupying the land of Canaan and taking it as God's promise to them. This generation that stood there in the wilderness, they were a bridge generation. They were born in the desert after their parents' failure, their parents' exodus out of Egypt. Their parents had failed because they had not believed and trusted God. Those parents had evidently been influenced by the polygamy and uh, the polytheism would be a better way to say it, the, the, the multi, multitude of gods, the myriad of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And though they had seen the working of the true God, nevertheless, as soon as things got tough in the wilderness, what did they do? They wanted a golden calf. They wanted to worship an idol. They were influenced by the philosophies around them. Also, their leader, Moses, 
who we believe wrote these letters, these books, these narratives. Moses was educated in the highest echelons of Egyptian academia. Remember, he was raised in the Pharaoh's palace. And so he would have understood all the philosophies. He would have been exposed to all the sophistication of that time and that world. And so there, as they waited on God, as they were facing a a massive challenge, as they were reflecting upon their background, they would have asked these same questions. Who are we? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going? Specifically, if you read the beginning of the book of Exodus, they would have been asking, how did we end up in Egypt? How did our parents end up in slavery in Egypt? And the book of Genesis answers that and so many other questions. And so God had taken oral tradition, he had protected that oral tradition, and then he he imparted it without error to Moses, and Moses wrote an account of creation, of the beginning of the nation of Israel, of slavery in Egypt, of deliverance out of Egypt, and now as they anticipated entering what we call the promised land, what they anticipated as God's gift to them, the land of Canaan, he was, God also gave them the law, his instructions, his revelation of himself. And in all of this, in all of it, there are messages for them about who they were and where they had come from and where they were going. But we also find messages for us, truths for us, The point that you get when you read the book of Genesis is a celebration of the boundless goodness of the Almighty God despite human disobedience and rebellion. You read Genesis, I encourage you to do it this week. Just pick up the Bible and start reading through Genesis. Don't worry about going on farther than that. Just read Genesis. You'll find some ugly stories. You'll find some unbelievable stories. You'll find some mysterious stories. But essentially what you have is a good God who created a good world and then disobedience and rebellion plunges that world into darkness and confusion and yet God doesn't give up. It's the grace of God. This abundant almighty God, his boundless goodness. It's the reason the Israelites would say, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As we enter into this series through Genesis, we ask the question, are there good reasons to believe? Do we have reasons to live in hope? Do we have reasons to worship? And I'm going to tell you that we do. Look with me in Genesis 1, verse 1. The foundation of everything. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In what ways can we celebrate this boundless goodness of Almighty God, despite our own doubts and our own disobediences, our own rebellions? And here's the question for us today. Centuries later, can we live in this fallen world with the same confidence that Israel was called to live in? Can we live in hope? Can we have informed worship? Can we live in such a way that our lives make a difference in our neighborhoods, 
in our families, in our places of work? Do we have confidence in this great God, our faithful creator? There's a lot of ground to cover this morning, even though there are only two verses. So I'm going to give you a lot of insight, a lot of uh, information. We're going to have a lot of screens uh, for you to follow along in your notes if you care to do that. If you don't, that's no problem at all. But I want to just, by way of introduction, dive into what we find in these first two verses. And then from them, we'll also extrapolate some of the other applications that come from the creation account that we'll dive into further next week. So let me begin with this. Let me tell you what we know. Based on what God's Word says, based on what the Bible says, this is what we know. The first thing we know is that God created everything. Again, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is not the beginning of God. The book of John makes that clear. In John 1, in the New Testament, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So from the very beginning, God existed already. You say, well, where did God begin? When you ask that question, you're beginning to comprehend the definition of God. There was no beginning with God. He always has been. And so here in Genesis 1, He is said to create the heavens and the earth. By the way, in Hebrew, the, there are several words for the activities of men and women. Men and women are said to make or to form or to build, but they are never said to create. This Hebrew word for create, it's only used of God. God is the one who created. He created out of nothing. He created space, time, and matter. And He created, as we will see, especially next week, He created by His Word. He created all the universe by his word. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He created the universe by the power of his word. And until he spoke, nothing existed besides himself. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible tells us this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so here you have the first thing we know, that God created everything. And unlike perhaps we would wish in our age of skepticism, we want the Bible to prove that. We want Moses to go into an explanation of how we can know of all the evidences. By the way, there are evidences. In fact, there's a sense in which the rest of the Bible talks about the glory of God in creation as an evidence that he put us here. There's unbelief that resides in sinful hearts. But it's interesting to me that the Bible just assumes God wants us to claim as a presupposition, if we can say it that way, that indeed he created all things. And this is different from all the other creation myths of the ancient Near East. This narrative, this claim, is that there was one God, not a multitude of gods, who sovereignly acted apart from any compulsion. You read all kinds of ancient myths and you have gods battling each other or gods trying to one-up each other and, or gods in a, in a lustful, jealous relationship with one another. And so you have the world somehow coming out of those kinds of conflicts. 
and the Hebrew Bible, our record of Scripture says, in the beginning God created. Not compelled to do so, not as a result of any battle that he was in, his sovereign decision. God created everything. We know this. The second thing we know is this. A straightforward reading of the text tells us that God created the earth unformed and unfilled. He created the earth unformed and unfilled. Again, verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void. Uninhabited, uninhabitable. The Hebrew, it's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew phrase that sounds clever. It sounds repetitive. Tohu wavohu. It, it's, it's meant to catch our attention. And this was the original form of the earth. Why did God do this? God could have spoken everything into existence by the word of his power in an instant. And it not only did, as we'll see next week, did he take six days, but in the initial creation of the heavens and earth, the earth was in existence in some premortal form, in some pre-creation form, in a way that was unformed and unfilled. Why did he do this? Well, we don't know for sure. But we do know this, that that was not his ultimate goal. In a sense, we can say God was not done yet. And the Bible makes that clear. One ancient commentator, not ancient, but an old commentator on Genesis says it this way, just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first of all the lump of clay and places it on his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish, so the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view of giving it afterwards order and life in this terrestrial state that is called Tehu and Vohu. This is the earth without form and void. And this refutes, at the very least, this refutes the idea of deism, that God created in a, some kind of big bang or whatever, he created and then he just let it go. Because you have even here a stage, a, a process of creation, that he created the earth unformed and unfilled. And we see this in the next verse, because he didn't just leave his creation or the rest of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we know here that God created everything, that he created the earth initially unformed and unfilled. And we know that God created through the presence of his Spirit. The original creation, it had no life of its own. Even in its unformed and unfilled state, there was the Spirit's presence there. And that implies there's going to be something happen. It implies purpose. There's a sense of anticipation. It sets up the narrative for what we're going to begin next week with day one and the days of creation. So God didn't just create and walk away. He didn't just create and he said, that's all I'm doing and leave some kind of natural processes to take their role. But rather, he created this earth in some kind of unformed and unfilled status, but his spirit was there moving, brooding, as it were, over the water, and creation would begin soon. Make no mistake, this is our God. This is the God of the Bible. Do we believe it? Do we know it? Because what you think of God, listen very carefully, what you think of God makes all the difference. The preacher A.W. Tozier said, whatever comes into your mind when you think of God is the most significant thing about you. 
to paraphrase him. And I don't want to be too simplistic, but if you just boil things down to first causes, if you just boil things down to reality, is your view of God will determine your view of everything in life. And the Bible begins with these assertions of the greatness, the mystery, the infinity, the power of our God who nevertheless is engaged and involved in our lives. That's what we find here. And if we believe the Bible, which we do, this is what we know. That God created everything. The earth initially was unformed and unfilled. And He created through the presence of His Spirit. That's what we know. But there are plenty of things we don't know. I'm glad no one said amen to that. There are plenty, plenty of things we don't know. First of all, we don't know how much time elapsed. The text doesn't tell us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit brooded over the face of the waters. And then God begins creation day one. There's no reference to time. I think it's possible that there were hours, days, years, centuries between verses 2 and 3. Yet once verse 3 begins, as we'll see next week, the Bible says it was in six days of a morning and an evening. So I believe, it's my conviction, many may disagree with me, that we have an ancient universe, but a young earth. That the universe could have been here for centuries, but then God, when he determined to do so, began day one and created the earth in six days. This is not the gap theory. Some of us who were raised on the Schofield Bible remember that idea that there was an original creation, there were civilizations, and they all disobeyed somehow between uh, likely involved with Satan's rebellion, and God wiped out the world, and that's where you get verse 2. So the old gap theory was you have verse 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there's all this civilization and Satan's rebellion and judgment, and the earth is now in a state of destruction, and then God recreates. That's not my position. I don't think that that speculation is not in the text. It's not easily supported. The greatest problem with that is that you have sin happening and death happening before the fall, which we have recorded in his word. And we have to always be careful of refashioning revelation in order to make it subservient to so-called science. Whether it's the gap theory, or whether it's the day-age theory, or whether it's the framework poetic theory, all of these confuse and conflate the holy text, and they produce more problems than they solve. If you believe in the day-age theory, that each of the days that we'll look at next week were long ages, then you have three days with no sun and no moon. How are you going to explain that? It all begins to unravel. But here, to gather your thoughts back, the focus of this is on the Creator. The perspective is from the earth. I believe this account is geocentric. Even the appearance of the stars and the heavenly bodies. It's geocentric. It's phenomenological language. We talk about the sun rising and setting. We understand that this is language that describes our view of reality. I think there is some element of that in the creation account. But the truth is we don't know how much time elapsed between verses 2 and 3. And here's what we also don't know. We also don't know when spirit beings were created. Have you ever noticed that? Genesis 1 doesn't tell us anything about that. All of a sudden in Genesis 3, the serpent shows up. Where did this fallen angel, where did this rebel, where did this accuser, the adversary, where did he come from? The Bible doesn't give us that information in Genesis 1. 
And so we don't know when spirit beings were created. We do know, the Bible tells us, that they worshipped on the morning of creation, that some fell and rebelled, but they exist in time. So they're not eternal like God. Only God is eternal. So there is some time in which the angel spirit beings were created, and then a significant number of them fell. We don't know when spirit beings were created. We also, third, we don't know what the pre-creation earth looked like. We don't know the details that we want to know. And there is a nearly infinite amount of mystery here. And I will not pretend to explain because I do not pretend to understand it all. The earth was unfilled and unformed. The spirit was brooding over the waters. What did that world look like? I don't know. But God began on day one to make it paradise. And that's what we have. Now, we are at a point where we're asking these questions, and the questions trouble us. We don't really understand how to find all of the answers. And many of us, many of us, I think, get very uncomfortable in Genesis 1. Because we see so much of so-called science that we don't see how it fits. And that's the reason I want to take a moment and broaden out this morning and just remind you of three things that we often forget. Three things that we often forget, especially for those of you who struggle with trusting the biblical record. First, we often forget the practical implications of the fall. We're going to get to this over the next few weeks, but listen to me carefully. I don't think anyone has ever been able to comprehend. I surely do not. I don't think anyone has ever been able to comprehend the devastation that comes in Genesis 3 with the fall. We look at evidences today, and we read the record, and we see evidences and have questions because of the way science works, and we look back at Genesis 1, and especially Genesis 2, and we say, we can't figure out how that fits together. And I'm saying, we forget the devastating consequences of the fall. Let me just suggest it this way. If you believe in creation and Adam and Eve's creation, which we do, and the fall that happened, which plunged the world into disobedience and a curse, even their DNA was perverted. That's how devastating and broad it was. I don't have any problem believing it was completely devastating geologically. I suppose it's possible there was some kind of... of, of atmospheric disaster. There was all kinds of change in nature. There were, there's all kinds of, of, of degradation and perversion in morals, but even down to DNA, because Adam and Eve's DNA, make no mistake, it had no flaws. It was perfect DNA. Yet something happened at the fall that twisted the DNA and it results in all of the abnormalities, all of the weaknesses that now we've discovered after all of this time, they've discovered DNA and they've looked into it and they say all, all of these quirks and all of these errors and all of these code problems. By the way, when they talk about the code, they forget if there's a code, there has to be one who put the code there. All of that comes from the fall, the devastating effects of the fall in all creation, in all relationships, in every single person we still bear evidence of it. And I think we forget that sometimes. 
I think we forget that there were these devastating implications in God's original creation, and also the fall affects the way we reason. And I think we should remember that, that even as we come and we try to, we're looking at science and we're looking at the world and we're reading the word and we believe what God has said, and yet even in that, we are flawed in our understanding. What the theologians call the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin upon our own minds and the challenges we have. We often forget the practical implications of the fall. We also tend to forget the practical implications of a mature creation. A mature creation that God created with age. Adam wasn't created as an embryo. He was created as a mature man. Plants didn't show up as mere seeds in the ground, but they showed up fully formed, fully flowering. Animal life was there. The practical implications of a mature creation, this is what we, secondly, we often forget. And the way to understand this, I won't spend much time on this, but the way to understand this is just the classic question, the issue of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, how many of you think the egg came first? Raise your hand. Ah, a couple. I think most of us, I think we, at least when I think about that question, it's like, well, the chicken came first or else the egg wouldn't be there. Well, that's, that's just in a, in a proverbial and somewhat silly way, that's this issue. That when God created, he created with the appearance of age. He created a mature earth. And so when we take science and we look at science and we struggle with how the word fits with science, how science fits with the word, sometimes we not only forget the effects of the fall, but we also forget the fact that when God created, he didn't start, as it were, from ground zero. He started with a mature creation. And that has evidences and implications, undoubtedly. But then third, we, off, we, third, we often forget the practical implications of the flood. Remember, I told you last week I left out the flood when I outlined the book of Genesis in my ordination interrogation. You can't leave out the flood. The flood is a, is a powerful demonstration, not only of God's judgment, but then of God's grace, but the effects of a worldwide flood were devastating. Now, here's my point. We take, and let's just say we're evidence-based people. Let's just say that. A lot of people do these days. And they say, well, I look at the evidence, and the evidence says this, and the evidence says this, and I look at history, and, and I extrapolate into history what the evidence says. But if in examining the evidence, you give no account to the devastation of a worldwide flood. If you give, if you're thinking about the age of the earth, if you give no credit to the idea that God created the earth in maturity, if you give especially, and this is powerful to me, if you never think through what are the possible effects of the curse and the fall upon God's beautiful creation, then you will, in examining the evidence, you are slamming the door on significant influences on how to understand that evidence. And all we're saying is as we read the Word of God with a level of humility, we need to not be surprised when so-called evidences might not line up with our expectations because there are things we don't know. We don't know about the practical implications of the fall. We don't know all of the influences of a mature creation, and we also don't know about what flood geology, what a worldwide flood, the devastation that that would have brought. We don't know 
These are things that we often forget. Now, why talk about any of this? Maybe some of you are wondering about that. Well, let me talk to you about what all this means. What all this means. First of all, this means that as creator, he is the true God. This is as opposed to atheism or scienceism. This text says that God is the creator, and if he's the creator, he is the true God. This is as opposed to polytheism, that there are all kinds of gods. The Bible is asserting that there is one God. This is as opposed to pantheism or dualism or some kind of weird uh, uh, force in the universe that's uh, undefined, some kind of spirituality, because God is above and apart from creation. He's not He's not part of it. He is apart from it, and he rules over it, and he is the one who initiates it. So he is transcendent. And as opposed to raw materialism or naturalism, God spoke reality, the universe, into existence. He is sovereign. He is the true God. We would ask, the question, and this is not a lecture on the philosophy of history, so I won't go there, but we would ask ourselves the question, why is materialism and naturalism so appealing in our world? I mean, to me, it seems pretty dark and hopeless, right? Like how we got here, first of all, we just think we have significance, but that thinking is just the synapses of our brain firing, and when we die, we go away and nothing is left. And the fact that we're here is a result of millions of years of, of survival of the fittest, blood and death, and, and we just happen to survive. We happen to be here, but our existence has no real meaning. Why would that be appealing to anyone? Why would anyone embrace that as a philosophy? And I, I don't, again, want to be too simplistic, but the basic reason that's so appealing is because it removes all moral responsibility. If I'm an accident of nature, I don't have to answer for myself. No one's ever going to hold me into account. Oh, I recognize society might, my wife might, and it's appropriate that she would. But in any kind of transcendent sense, what you do doesn't matter. Even the idea of laws. I mean, you've read this, you know this. The idea of society, the reason we decide what is right and wrong is just because someone along the line has figured out that the best way we can get along is by, we have, is by having standards. And so we have these standards that allow us to exist. But there is no objective reality. There is no objective right or wrong. We're seeing the fruit of this on our college campuses today, aren't we? in the inability to think through issues of right and wrong and life and death. Whereas the Bible says, no, 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 no. Here's where you ground everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means there is someone we will answer to. All this means that as creator, he is the true God. Secondly, what this all means is that as creator, he is the active God. 
He is the active God. Again, in the same way that he created the earth unfilled and unformed, and yet the Spirit was there moving, brooding, hovering over the water. In the same way, God still cares about his creation. He is still present. This rules out the idea of deism. This rules out the idea of determinism, that nothing we do matters. This rules out the idea of raw humanism, that we're left to ourselves. God is still active. The Word of God acknowledges this, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, as God is worshipped, He is spoken to and said, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Note that. And the host of heaven worships you. Of course, we understand now, because of the incarnation of Jesus, that he was active in creation. And so Hebrews 1 says this, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we say this often throughout Advent and Christmas. As Jesus was a helpless infant in the manger, he was at the very same time holding the universe together through the word of his power. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. You're well on your way to comprehending what we're talking about. In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is God's sustaining, superintending presence. And it is the basis for our assurance. Here's the word you're going to hear over and over again this year. This is his providence. The fact that he is still at work. There is purpose to his working that he is sustaining all things, and somehow, though not robbing us of the freedom of our decisions, he nevertheless has ordained things in such a way that he will accomplish what he chooses to accomplish. And once again, I say, you would object and say, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't follow. And I would say, as soon as you begin to think that, you're well on your way to comprehending it. Because this is the mystery of our infinite God. He is active in the world. And this is not always easily understood Our friends, the Puritans, used to talk about hard providences, and nearly all of us have had hard providences in our lives, haven't we? And if you haven't yet, you will. But this is our active God. In the same way that His Spirit hovered over the dark deep, He is not done yet. This means that as Creator, He is the true God, As creator, he is the active God. It also means that as creator, he is the faithful God. If this is true, and it is, he can be trusted. There is not a reason to live in despair. And I say that well aware that I don't know the specifics of your life, at least most of you, but I know enough about life And I have lived enough life myself, and I have dealt with other people who have gone through incredible hard providences, that I am able to tell you that the God of creation, who revealed himself especially through Jesus Christ, he is the faithful God that you can trust. There is never ground for despair. There is never ground for hopelessness. There is never ground for giving up. 
because this is our great God. And there's a mystery here that we are connecting our lives here on the west coast of California in 2024. We're connecting our individual lives, one of eight billion people on the earth, in a vast sea of the universe, and yet we believe that there is a connection between us personally and the God who created all things. And that is a glorious truth. And it is especially proven in Jesus Christ. And so again, what did the message of Genesis say to those children of Israel as they waited on the shore of the Jordan River and as Moses revealed to them what we call the five books of Moses, the first books of the Bible, what does it say? It says that there is this almighty God who is boundless in his goodness despite our own sin and rebellion. This is the God we trust, the God we serve, and he is faithful. He is faithful in his mercy and grace, and this is the promise of the gospel. And Genesis 1 begins this unfolding of Though God is good, man is rebellious and sinful. And what will God do about that? And he provides a covering. He provides a sacrifice. He provides a way in which he declares sinful people righteous. And it's through the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't see that immediately in Genesis 1. We see hints of it in Genesis 3. And hints of it with the sacrifices. And hints of it through the history of Israel. And we see it come to flourishing at Christmas time with the Incarnation. And in Good Friday and Easter, with the fulfillment of the promises that a Savior has come. And that's the gospel. And listen, folks, you don't have to understand everything about Genesis 1 to believe the gospel. But if you've not believed the gospel, you'll never understand Genesis 1. If you've not humbled yourself before the God of heaven and receive the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ. These truths will remain mysteries to you. But far more significant than that. You still bear the guilt of your own sin. And you will face judgment someday. And the reason this church exists. The reason Christians. The reason we still draw breath. Is because we believe that God has provided a way. That we can be declared right with him. And it's not through our own performance but it's through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. He's faithful in his mercy and grace in the gospel, and then he's faithful in his love and his care for us day by day. And I say that with absolute confidence. In the darkest days of my life, I know that this is true. In walking through devastation in families, in walking through with other people the fear of death, in walking through great suffering, I'm here to tell you that God has never failed to show himself faithful. And for any single one of us today, perhaps, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. For any single one of us today, perhaps you would say, but you don't know how devastating my life is. And I would remind you that your life is not defined by a screenshot. Your life is defined by a streaming video. It's not a screenshot of your individual circumstances right now. But rather, the faithfulness of God is found not so much in a screenshot of your immediate circumstances, but the faithfulness of God is shown in the way He has worked. And I would take it all the way back to creation. The way He has worked, and even before creation, 
and the way he has worked through history and the way he brought about salvation in Jesus Christ and then the way he's worked in your life to bring you to an awareness of the gospel, this is the faithfulness of your God. And if he is faithful in the past and we've seen how he promises to be faithful in the future, we can trust him right now, even though that screenshot might not be what we like, what we would choose. It might not be understandable to us. But he is worth trusting because he is the faithful God, his creator. He's the true God. He's the active God. He's the faithful God. Do you see how we, the followers of Jesus, can say, along with the Old Testament people, Israel, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let me end by simply saying, what does this mean for us? All of this means that we are woefully dependent, but our God is infinitely dependable. And that's what we'll learn as we work through Genesis this year. We will see in Adam and Eve. We will see in Cain and Abel. We will see in Noah and his family. We will see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We will see in the sons of Jacob. We will see in Joseph. We will see all the way through the book of Genesis how woefully dependent we are on God's grace. And we will also find a God who is infinitely dependable. And that is good news. We can say it more simply. We've said it before. God is God and we're not. And to that we all can say, amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Though we don't profess to understand it in all of its mysteries and fullness. Strive to believe what it says. What it says about beginnings. What it says about you. What it says about creation. And we will not profess to resolve all the mysteries or answer everyone's questions. But we simply fall back into simple faith that you are who you say you are and you have done what you say you have done. And not only do we have that faith in the way you created the world, but that faith applies to the way you have sent a Savior to cover our sin and our guilt. And in this we find this blessed assurance that we've sung about today. And we celebrate it at your table. And we want that assurance, we want that kind of faith to blanket our lives this coming year. Through all of the blessings and the goodness that you've poured out upon us and through the dark providences that we might experience. May we be people of faith with our feet firmly anchored on the rock of ages. Our God who is God from everlasting to everlasting. 
do a work in our own hearts and in our families, our marriages, our homes. Do a work in our church family. May we live out these truths in such a way that we encourage others. Lord, we pray for those who may be with us today who are not there yet. We pray that they would have open hearts, that you would work in their hearts and lives to the work of the gospel. May we be faithful friends to them. May we love them well. And Father, in a world that seems, as the world really always has, but in unique ways, the world has lost its way. Ground us in your truth. And may that never make us arrogant. But may it drive us to humility and dependence upon you. You are our great faithful God. May we worship you. May we live for you. May we please you. May we know your presence today, this week, and throughout this year. Glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.